this is the drummer's resource. <laughs> I'm just kidding. This is the drummer's resource podcast session 31. And the quote of the day is from Helen Keller who said, life is a daring adventure or nothing. Here we go. to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Ruffini, and we're coming at you with information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. All right, all right, all right. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and I'm just I'm just in a good mood today. I don't know why, but yeah, I mean it's Friday. Well, I'm recording this on a Friday, and uh, it's actually not even that warm out, but it's sunny, and I'm home visiting my family, and I'm just I'm in a great mood. So that's why I'm uh, I'm a little rambunctious. And this interview that we have today is great. It's Chris Coolis from OAR, and Chris talks about he's a founding member of OAR, so he talks about how he started this band in a basement with his best friend and they're still together to this day and they're touring all over the country and you know they were before in like their mom's van and now they have tour buses and multiple tour buses and uh you know tractor trailers carrying their equipment around and techs and 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 tour managers and all kinds of stuff which is just amazing that they built this thing from the ground up and so there's a ton of information in the interview and Chris is uh, dude is hilarious. There's parts in the in the interview where I'm literally doubled over laughing. So uh, so that's always good, but definitely has a ton of information too. So it's a really enjoyable interview, and I hope you guys like it as much as I enjoy doing the interview with Chris. And if you like the podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. I would really really love you for that. And if you don't want to leave a review, it's all good. Well, I'll still love you. So uh, here's the interview with Chris, and I hope you like it. Enjoy. Chris, what's happening, man? Thanks so much for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. Hey, man. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I know that your time is is precious. We were just talking about last week about how you're you're flying here and you're flying there and you got some some promo going on and a new record coming out and everything. So let's let's talk about that real quick, man. Sounds great. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we um we are pretty busy. We got a new album coming out June 10th and uh we're heading out to the West Coast uh for about a month. Um we're doing this cool concept where we're taking uh, this idea we had from a year or two ago where we played some small venues uh, for multiple nights in a row, and created like a little residency, mm-hmm. made it like a really fun, fan-friendly kind of a show. Um, and so we took it out to the West Coast and we're going to Vegas, L.A., San Diego. What did I miss? San Francisco? Um and uh, doing like, you know, a couple nights in some amazing venues uh, like the Troubadour in L.A., uh, the Independent in San Francisco, Belly Up Tavern in San Diego, and the new Brooklyn Bowl out in Vegas. And, nice. and just making it just like a really cool destination event. That's cool. Uh, so, so, you know, even if you don't live in San Diego, we got a travel package involved so you could kind of like get some hotel and airfare involved and some cool VIP stuff and get some people out to some warm weather because this was the never-ending winter. Dude, it's, it snowed last night here. Are you kidding me? No. This morning I looked out and there was snow on the cars and I was like, it's April. It's April. What is it? The 16th of April that we're, we're talking right now. I mean, this has, it's got to end sometime, right? I, I get, I don't know. I'm not. <laughs> and I was gone for a month in January. So I was like, Oh man, I'm going to, and I was in, I was in California and Florida. So I was like, yeah. this is great. I'm going to miss all this weather. And I come home and winter's like, well, I'll just last 
an extra month since you were <laughs> since you were gone. So you were in the same boat as I am. We're yeah. looking forward to some nice weather out in the West Coast, and then we got a little tiny break, um, and then our uh, summer tour starts in June, right as the new album comes out. So tell us about the new record. So the new record is called the Rockville LP. And uh, we recorded a couple songs in Nashville, uh, a couple songs in New York. Uh, but the song, the theme of the song is a little bit based off of um, reconnecting kind of with, uh, with, with home. Because everyone has that shared experience of where they grew up, your friends, what it was like, how, you know, what the world looked like through your eyes when you were kind of growing up, mm-hmm. that positivity of that feeling. And for the last couple of years for us, man, things have been really busy. Um, you know, we're traveling around, um, you know, following the, you know, following the dream and that's exciting, but for everyone else, even if you have a regular job or if you're raising a family or whatever you're doing, there's just been this period of the last couple of years in between college and getting to this point in our lives now, uh, where you can't really just stop and take a look back at like, at some of those, those goals and things you wanted to do and just say, Hey man, uh, not that much hasn't changed that I can't still accomplish this kind of stuff. Right. So we named this, the album, the Rockville LP, and it's just about that shared experience that everyone kind of has. Mm-hmm. Makes sense, man. And as you know, like you said, as, as you're going down this journey, you know, and you're, and you're doing what you want to be doing, but then, you know, you're like, well, what about these other things that, that I, that I wanted to do and just like connecting yeah. with, you know, connecting with those parts of your life, which I, I think is cool. And it's cool to always bring it back home too. You yeah. Know? You know, I think that's what a lot of our audience connects with. Uh, some of our first songs, we had a song, uh, that's still very popular called black rock. Mm-hmm. And it was this idea about taking that place from home with you, with you go somewhere. If we're going off to college and uh, if you're going off, you know, we have a lot of, um, you know, uh, we've heard from a lot of troops, you know, who listen to their stuff while they're deployed overseas. And just that idea of taking that piece of home with you and not feeling so far away. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a song called I Feel Home, just kind of about that experience of hanging out with your friends, you know, right. in the driveways before you're old enough to kind of go out, you know, and yeah. just uh, those messages of home and, and your roots and stuff like that. I think, you know, it's just uh, – a message that has always been uh, there for us um, in a way to kind of connect with our friends, keep in touch with family and friends and, and, and base that, you know, things around that. The things that the things that matter most. Yes, sir. So speaking of home, uh, that's a perfect segue into into how this whole thing started, because it's not like a band that that kind of pulled members from from different areas of the country and, and different bands. You guys started young. I mean, you guys started in high school, right? We did. And actually, we started uh, even earlier than that, um, going back. Um, so our singer, Mark, and I, we've been best friends since kindergarten. I mean, our parents were friends before we were even alive. So we grew up together, you know, uh, you know, a block away from each other. And we're, you know, just basically went to every school together, every summer camp together, played sports, everything, yada, yada, yada. Um, we started our first band in eighth grade. We played the eighth grade talent show. Um, Did you win? You know, it wasn't a competition, <laughs> I don't think. Maybe it was a competition and we lost. Whatever it was. Listen, had- if you don't think it was a competition, then you lost. I hate to be the one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You're killing me today. Love it. 
so we lost the eighth grade talent show. Um, <laughs> and I don't care if we lost. It was to this date, we joke that it was still the loudest crowd we had ever had. I mean, when the curtains <laughs> open, it was like, you'd have thought it was like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan show <laughs> or something. Like it just, from that moment on, we were like, okay, so this is what we're going to do with our lives. Um, but it's pretty funny. At that point, we were in a bunch of different bands with a lot of different friends. But I Mark- gotta, I gotta interrupt you real quick, and I apologize. But yeah, man. was it that at that point in your life when you're like, "This is what I'm going to do as a career"? I think so. Yeah, I think we knew right away. I mean, I don't know if I knew as a as a career at that point. I mean, you're in eighth grade, but right. you just know right away. Like, I mean, there are certain things. Like, okay, so we saw Pearl Jam unplugged on MTV. Mm-hmm. And without a doubt, that was the inspiration. That was, we, we have to start a band. Right. And I had a drum set in the basement. And so I could, you know, kind of play some beats. I wasn't necessarily a drummer, but I had the drum set. So I was the drummer. Right. And Mark, uh, he had been kind of acting in some plays. So he had to sing a little bit so he could sing. So he was the singer. And uh, we wanted to start a band. We didn't know anybody else who played any instruments. So we asked around our junior high, who was, who was the best guitar player. And found out it was this kid, Richard On, and we didn't know him. Uh, so we went up to him at the uh, in the cafeteria at lunch, and he thought we were coming to fight him. <laughs> so that's his 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 like story. You know, he really thought we were gonna like you know beat him up in the um, lunch cafeteria. Right? Um, did you so, have a Did you have a uh, a reputation for beating up guys in the cafeteria? I mean, if you look at me, I'm like five seven, and I'm not threatening at all right i think maybe the friends that we were with our our crew of friends we were with were maybe a little bit more intimidating and mm. so maybe it just you know what i mean whatever it was richard uh he he he, he basically uh you know he agreed to come over uh and and kind of jam with us and we had another bass player at the time so we played the eighth grade talent show and we played a cover of pearl jam uh porch mm-hmm. and we played Eric Clapton, Wonderful Tonight, but we didn't do like the slow version. We did a kind of up-tempo thing. And man, it was just – it was absolutely awesome. Uh, We thought we crushed. We thought it was the greatest thing ever. We got on stage and uh, Richard said, you know, uh, I quit. I didn't like the bass player. And we were like, well, we didn't like the bass player either. He was kind of – he was doing some funny moves like standing up and putting his guitar in the air. It was a little too – showmany for what we were going for if that's even a word um, <laughs> it is now it is now so we said all right well we agree we're, we're gonna fire him you you can't quit the band and richard was just like no no no, I, I didn't like him i'm sorry i can't do it we were like we just we couldn't understand how we quit the band you know right. it's, it makes sense so fast forward the next couple of years and uh mark started writing his own songs um and we would practice in my mom's basement. Uh, we also played in a couple other bands. But uh, I would say fast forward like two years later and we had a couple couple songs that actually would, would become the first OAR songs. And we were still friends with Richard and we we're now in high school. Uh, and we said, man, we got to get him back over to hear what we've been up to. So you uh, had a different bass player at the time though? We didn't even have another bass player, I would say. We had played in a couple other bands, but there wasn't a bass player right. that we would say, hey, you got to come over. But I had been uh, lifeguarding over the summer as like a summer job and uh, found out at the end of the summer, one of the guys that I had been working with played bass. So I said, oh, hey, why don't you come over and, and jam with us? We're having this guitar player buddy come over too. 
And that was Benj, our bass player. Mm-hmm. Now. The four of us clicked, and that was in 1995, I think. And, you know, from there on, we just, you know, started making music that we wanted to be making. I guess we had all been playing in different bands and certain things like that. And when the four of us came together, that was of a revolution. That was the band. That was OAR. That's what all kind of clicked. And, uh, you know, we recorded a CD. And when we would play in some local clubs, um, I mean, sometimes they weren't even clubs. I mean, man, we would play like a local pizza joint. But for us at that age, it felt like we were playing like biker bars, <laughs> you know. Uh, and a lot of friends would come out. A lot of family would be there. And uh, it just – at this point, it kind of felt like there was something happening. Mm-hmm. So um, that's kind of what made us decide like we owed it to ourselves to give it a shot. And so we took a look at um, our options and we said Ohio State is the biggest school in the country. Um there's like 60,000 kids. Um, right. I think there were 81 bars in a square mile radius of campus. Thriving music scene. Uh, and it was a place we could all relatively get into. Right. Uh, so we, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like we all just kind of ended up there immediately. That's another, a little bit longer of a story. But we got out there to Ohio State and that's, you know, sort of where it really started to take off. So that was the main goal of going to Ohio State. It was kind of it was kind of uh, focused on the band, and you were saying, "Hey, let's all go here for the sake of the band." It do- it wasn't like a luck thing <clears throat> that y'all ended up there. It was a strategic move for the band to go out there and say, "Hey, we can kind of we can kind of maybe establish ourselves out here in this huge, you know, thriving college scene." Yeah, it it, it was. I mean, we were honestly. So what year? Parents. What year was that? We went to Ohio State in 1997. 97, okay. Um, and our parents were cool with it as long as they knew that school was the priority. Right. right. Uh, and so yeah, we went out there. Mark and I got in and uh, Richard, our guitar player, he, uh, he had to go to community college for a semester to get his grades up. Mm-hmm. And he transferred out you know, in that winter of our freshman year. And our bass player, Benj, he was a year behind us. <laughs> And at that point he was, you know, visiting colleges and things like that. And we'd get him to come up and we'd book a show and he'd come up and, uh, you know, play on some weekends. And we were just basically locked into the point that the four of us were eventually all going to get there. Right. Right. And that's what happened. Um, but once we all did get there, it was a little bit of a challenge to get into the music scene because we're, you know, four guys from out of town. We're young. We don't have a manager. We don't have any tour history. The promoters wouldn't book us the way they were booking all the bands in that scene. Uh, right. And so we had to kind of get creative and figure out how to break the rules in order to make it happen. And so what we would do was since they wouldn't book us the traditional way, we would rent out a venue. As if it was a private party. Right. And the staff at the venues weren't in dialogue with the promoters. No one knew what was going on. They just knew there was a private event. So they'd have like one bartender, one security guy, you know, at the door, and 2,000 people would show up. Nice. And we just did that enough times until. Now, were they showing up for you guys or were they showing up just because it was a private party? They were showing they were showing up for us and we would promote it as a party and that right. kind of thing. I mean, I did kind of skip over certain things. I mean, uh at that time, uh and this was nineteen ninety seven, nineteen ninety eight, I guess by the time this really started, 
getting a little bit bigger. But that's right when Napster exploded and mm -hmm. every kid in college was downloading music left and right. And mm -hmm. we didn't have a record deal. We weren't on the radio. We didn't have any of those opportunities yet. But uh, Napster was like the biggest thing ever. And mm -hmm. our music was spreading across the country that way. And wow, I got uh, that's really the connection. So while at first we got there, we were struggling to book shows. It didn't mean that we weren't reaching an audience, you know, in that college, you know, kind of demographic or whatever you call it. They, they were, they were keyed in. They knew what was happening. Right. We were on campus promoting it ourselves with flyers and everything and selling tickets ourselves. You know, if you're selling $5 tickets or something like that, you know, to, to all your friends and classes and around campus and walking around to the different fraternities and sororities and going into the, you know, um, student unions and things like that, you know, for a five party, you know, $5 kind of a thing that was like a huge fun event, you know, people would, people would show up. Yeah. And so we did that enough times until people took notice. And when I say people like promoters, Mm -hmm. uh, and then in a way we sort of had the upper hand when it came to, to booking shows, you know, we'd be able to get the good venues on the good nights and things like that. So, right. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of people that listen that are like, okay, I get it. You go to a college, you know, and you're playing in this band and bridging the gap between how you do this as, you know, as a hobby and how you guys turn this into a career, which is great that you're sharing this because, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are in this situation that, and I know, man, it's tough to get in bars and, you know, to break into a, a new scene. And uh, we, we actually used to do the same thing with my old band. And it's a great idea to say, OK, well, if you don't want to book us, then we'll just book ourselves and, you know, and, and we'll have people come. Yeah. Um, so so once you're you're in college and you start to you start to build up this uh, this following, how does it go from, you know, being in you like you said, you were in a, a van, you know, going from like a van to a bus to. To, because I think a lot of people are like, well, I don't know how to, I don't know how to make that jump from a van to a bus with a crew and 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 all that. Well, um, for us, it, it definitely was small steps. It you know the overnight success was you know fifteen years of hard work. You know that same story you hear over and right, over. Right. And in a lot of ways, so what we've kind of talked about so far, maybe I would consider that like phase one. You know, where the band became something enough where we really um, took the steps and kind of the chance on it to go to college together. Mm -hmm. um, and then at that point, college was a really big turning point for us. So Napster is something that – it was so lucky, man. That It was the right time and the right place and so much happened because of that. But I will say that there was a lot we did on our end to make things happen. Mm -hmm. Um and what we would do was we actually – we got a manager at that point and the manager was our singer's older brother. And it was family and he started off doing this thing you know, pro bono. But the point was he was able to take a look at, OK, you guys are in school and we can play on the weekends. How do we turn this into something that we can do every weekend and make this – something where we can expand outside of Columbus. Mm -hmm. uh, you guys are in Columbus, Ohio. There's how many colleges? I mean, you've got in Ohio alone. I mean, we, we start going to Dayton and Miami of Ohio and Ohio University and go down to Cincinnati and Cleveland up to Bowling Green. Uh, these little sort of regional things had like a little of a ripple effect. 
right. you know, and you could spread out to, out to Bloomington, Indiana, you know, and go to Chicago and Michigan. There's so many colleges around. We based it around that kind of stuff and we'd fill in and play places like Toledo. It wasn't necessarily a college, but we'd fill in these things. And each weekend we started, you know, we'd be out of town from Thursday till Sunday. Right. Uh, in the van, we'd be in the back seat of the van, you know, basically fighting over the back seat that had the overhead light, so we could write our paper or study <laughs> class or whatever was going on. So it was really those college years of starting to build a, a touring fan base uh, and building it grassroots. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's this idea of taking grassroots to to more of a mainstream thing. And when people say mainstream, I think. You know, it's the same thing as saying like pop music. Uh, it's not necessarily all bad. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily has to be uh, Lady Gaga or Pink or Justin Bieber right. or Miley Cyrus when I say that. And hey, again, I'm not knocking that at all, but that's that's mainstream. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, and for us, we want to have that exposure. We want to grow the band. At what point do you get to being big enough, you know what I mean, that it's – it's it's it is mainstream so we had to kind of learn everything going on around us and so our manager he started a record label on paper you know he didn't have it wasn't a real label right right. it's just this kind of fake thing a vanity label totally yeah Yeah. uh and that was a way for us to get distribution and so he signed a distribution deal and so we could get in back when they had music stores, you know, and we get into, you know, Best Buy and all the mom and pop stores and towers and stuff like that and go around and start playing in-store um, acoustic events and meet and greets and things like that. And it was all about just really um, connecting with this grassroots, you know, fan base, building the fan base. Right. Um, and then from there, after four years of college, uh, not everyone in the band graduated, but the band had got to a point where it was, it was, it looked like things were ready to sort of take to the next level. And a couple of the guys in the band were totally cool with uh, putting college on hold and giving this, you know, the next shot, you know, the next level or whatever you'd say. And we kind of hit the road. And then from there, we had sold enough records independently. Um, that we started getting noticed by record labels and started meeting with them. So that's kind of the next, you know, phase. But right. that's what we did in college. I mean, it was about really building out this grassroots thing and and developing what we do on stage. Um, you know, I think the biggest advice in a way is just to like, you know, find what you do, find who out, you know, be who you are, whatever it is. Sure. Be be that, you know, and develop that and be ready at any moment's notice. We played every show, every po- every possible thing. I mean, I'm not saying you should say yes to everything all the time and be a pushover like mm-hmm. that. There's just so many opportunities and people just, I don't know, I don't want to be negative, but it just seems like currently right now, it's just, you know, we're used to seeing, you know, quote unquote stars on, you know, The Voice or American Idol. And, and that's, you know, that's not the road that we, we took. You know, we developed things over time and built an audience. And it's not just about necessarily, you know, being on a game show kind of a thing. And so um, there's always, you know, that, that side of putting in the, putting in some work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that if you go on American Idol and you win, I think that that's great. And I think that <clears throat> you would probably have some talent to win the American Idol contest. But I, it's almost like people are getting force fed this and saying, well, if you want to make it as a musician, that's the way you have to do it. You either exactly. have to win The Voice or go on American Idol or America's Got Talent or something like that rather than getting in a van with, you know, a group of your friends and 
<clears throat> and touring around the country until enough people come that you can make a living out of it. Absolutely. You know, I, I was talking to Stanton Moore about it and he said, you know, get in a van with your friends and travel around the country for 10 years and then get out and let me know where you're at. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's, yeah. It's like, you'll, you'll probably be where you want to be, but sitting around and saying, well, when's it going to happen to us? When's it going to happen to us? It's not, you have to go make it happen, which is great that, that, that that's what you guys did, you know? And that's speaks volumes to what other people can do too. Cool. Thank you. you. Know? Yeah, absolutely. So what are some, what are some obstacles that you guys had to overcome? Because it's not an easy road to get there. So what are, so what are some obstacles or some failures that you guys had that, uh, that you can share with the listeners? That's a good question. I mean, for us, it was a lot of times, uh, for, as a band, you know, I told you like, you know, figuring out how to, how to break the rules or bend the rules to make things happen because, uh, we weren't always accepted. You know, we finally got into a certain thing and then we weren't accepted at the next door. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was always somebody at the door who was, you know, we're not cool enough or we're not this or we're not that. Right. Um, and so it was just saying, Hey, we're going to do what we're going to do, whether you like it or not. You know, um, uh, I, for me personally, I found some, uh, at a certain point, I sort of got frustrated with my playing mm-hmm. um, because I had never really developed those skills. I, I never, I okay, like I love music and I grew up being such a fan of music and wanting to find new music and turning other friends onto music. Um, you know, that was just kind of my thing. I was just obsessed with it. All I wanted to do, mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to be in a band, um, but I didn't really see that connection between that and like what I was doing in school. You know, I, I took some music classes. I was doing symphonic band, was doing things like that. Um, but I guess all the opportunities were there. Uh, and I just didn't see that as a priority. Right. And I always thought that these things that would one day naturally develop never did. And the band was at a point where it had gotten so big uh, but it was almost like at a point that it was a, a level beyond I was capable of performing at. And I was in the hot seat pretty often. Um, did, I they, did they address that with you? Y- yes and no, because in, in a lot of ways it was growing pains. You know, all the other guys didn't necessarily have that experience. But right. as the drummer, there are certain things that come up that uh, are way more noticeable. Mm-hmm. For instance, going into the studio, um, we got to a point really quickly where it was our first album or two was in a guy's basement. And then all of a sudden we're working with John Alasia, a producer who had just done John Mayer, Dave Matthews Band, all these huge guys. And we have these opportunities. But those guys are used to working with pro level, you know, Yeah, like Steve Jordan was on the drums two days before you. And then you walk in and you're like, oh. and, And I'm not, I don't know what a click track is. Right. And we're having to make it record. So that's a situation of having to be in, the, in, the, in a hot seat or uh, playing live. Let's say uh, a lot of the things we do on stage developed because we play these like house parties in college. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a set time. You're on stage from 915 until 10. You know, it was here, go on. You guys have four hours or six hours yeah. of playing a party. And so we didn't have that much material. So we would have to improvise and freestyle and come up with things. And while we didn't really jam out the way like 
bands like Fish and that mm-hmm. stuff do, we would definitely extend things and jam things out. And so that would kind of keep us on our toes and keep it fresh and fun. And I think that by default, that's what kind of people were attracted to mm-hmm. is that you never hear the same song you know, twice and there's all these cool things and they could come out and they could tape the shows and listen back and then trade them with their friends for other things and create this really cool experience. However, for me, from a drum point, I didn't have all these skills yet. So when these things would happen, I have to be on my toes. I kind of felt out of control at times. Like, uh, you know, I don't know, like not knowing what subdivisions are and things like that. Like if I would start a drum fill, I wouldn't know exactly what was going to happen or how it was going to stop. You know, that's not a good position to be. And then all of a sudden, fast forward a couple years later, and you're on stage in front of not just a couple hundred people, but thousands of people. And when that stuff happens, man, train wrecks can happen. Yeah. And if a guitar player doesn't know what he's doing, it's a lot easier for him to just not do something and come back in when he knows where the one is or sure. whenever he knows whatever the chord changes. But for the drummer, I can't just stop. Or I can't just start on a one and then go off into some weird thing of where I think the one is and totally throw everyone off the track. Yeah. So those are like two situations, you know, but it was just basically like I I couldn't do some things that I wanted to do. Like I'm not trying to be negative about my playing. Like, you know, I came up and I had all these awesome experiences playing with the band and, and we were having fun doing that. But like we play 200 some shows a year and I'd hear things in my head that I wanted to do. Right. And either not be able to do them like physically. I didn't have the chops. Or not know how to do that. You know, I didn't know that it was a kind of a triplet thing between my hands and my feet and all that kind of stuff. And that's a frustrating feeling, I'm <sighs> sure, you know. It, it was. It was, uh, you know, I'd come off stage and just be so pissed off. Uh, you know, I just I was so sure that those things would just naturally happen and they hadn't, you know. So um, it just basically kind of came to a crossroads and I knew I had to make a change. Um and so, you know, everyone in the band knew I was frustrated and all that. And so it was just kind of this weird situation of like, how do I know what to fix if I don't even know what's wrong? You right, know? Right. Um, so uh, I ended up uh, finding a great drum teacher and he got me on the right path. And, uh, you know, there's still a million things that I want to keep working on. But from where I am now uh, from versus 10 years ago, the last 10 years of my life, I've just been dedicated now to drumming as just like an obsession as opposed to music in general before then. So, you know, there's a lot more I want to work on and tons of drummers that are do a million things that I would, you know, pray to do. But like I just now I'm feeling in control at least and I know what to work on. I'm getting better and mm-hmm. all of these things. And, you know, I'm at a point where, you know, I, I'm actually, you know, doing some some lessons on Skype myself, you know. Nice. And I've taken lessons on Skype and I've just met tons of teachers along the way. But it was that first teacher that completely changed my life. Who were you uh, who were you studying with? Uh, his name was Walter Saub and he's from that. He was from the D.C. area. He was like the uh, premier uh, drum set teacher. Uh, <laughs> so basically, because I told you, like we were touring at that time, maybe 200, 250 shows a year. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know how to find a drum teacher if I was always on the road. Um, and so my dad works, have you ever heard of Chuck Levins, Washington Music Center? Yeah. That name sounds familiar. Yeah. They're yeah. like, 
the, one of the, like, I think the biggest music store on the East coast, like as a single music store, yeah. not like guitar center. Yep. That. So they're in DC. And so I called uh, the guy who runs the drum counter. His name is Coleman. He's, he's just, man. I mean, I kind of grew up there in the store and mm. uh, something we skipped over how much Chuck's like helped out the band in the early days with equipment and stuff like that. But so I called up the guy at the drum counter and, you know, I, I told him the situation and, um, he said, uh, you know, I've got the guy for you. Um, but, uh, he would, uh, he's kind of got like a, a thick, you know, you got to have a thick skin, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so, um, yeah, I, I basically reached out to this guy, Walter and, uh, Oh, I'm sorry. My phone was breaking up. Are you still there? Yeah. 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 Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so yeah. So Coleman said, uh, Chris, I've got the guy for you, but you got to have thick skin. And I remember him. He was like, he's a real motherfucker. And I don't mean <laughs> that. And he's like, and I don't mean that as a compliment. <laughs> so I got off the phone with Coleman and I called this guy, Walter and he was, he was an older guy. Right. So he answers me like, yeah. And I'm like, is, uh, is this, hello, is this Walter Salb? I'm kind of nervous. He's like, what do you want? And I give him the rundown, you know, hey, I'm Chris. I play drums in a band. You know, we've been all over the country. The band's gotten really big, you know, and I'm afraid it's getting bigger than, you know, a level that I'm capable of performing at, you know. And I always thought I'll, you know, one day figure some things out. But here I am and it hasn't happened and I'm going on and on, you know, and I'm frustrated and I don't know where to begin. And I'm thinking like, oh shit, like I sound like a lunatic at this point, you know? <laughs> and he's not talking. And it was like silence, you know? And for me, it seemed like total, like, like an eternity, you know? And then he said, well, why don't you come over here and we can talk about it? And that was it. Like, just like that. I was like, now? And he's like, yeah, hurry the fuck up. Sounds like we've got some work to do. <laughs> and oh my God, this guy is so, he, this guy literally, in the best of ways was just batshit crazy. Nice. Unlike any other person, you know, I've ever met in my life. I mean, he was the last of his kind. And he was just like, dude, he was, he was the godfather. I mean, he was like, he was Scarface. He just terrorized everybody (laughs) and mostly his students. I mean, like, especially the younger ones who couldn't quite handle that style and stuff were just, they, they were just getting eaten alive. But really it was the more he fucked with you, the more he liked you. Right. And inside, he was the sweetest guy ever. But he just had this very, I don't know what it is, abrasive personality. He cursed nonstop. I mean, the guy made Wolf of Wall Street look like a Disney movie. <laughs> His teaching style was like something you, you wouldn't even believe it could happen. And it all turned out to be like true stories. Like if he was <laughs> teaching students, you know, like traditional grip and the movement you should use your arm, you know, right. he would hold – his cigar up to your arm so that if you moved it too far in the wrong way, you would get burned. I mean, he, he would put like duct tape over students' mouths if they talked back to him and stuff like that. I mean, there's just so many stories of this I'm guy. Taking no, I'm doing all this with oh. my students. Yeah. Okay. So there was another guy who, um, who, uh, heard like a, like a click, like a chick, chick you know, at his, you know, temple. Uh-huh looks up and Walter has a gun to his, his head and he's like, you want to try that again? What? <laughs> I mean, everything. I mean, like, uh, he would tell these stories of, uh, so he was a drummer, but he was also like a band leader and he had played <laughs> for 50 years in the DC area and he had, he had his own 17 piece orchestra. Right. 
and the bongo player showed up late for work and he locked him in the trunk of his car. <laughs> and and every time he told this story, it would just get more and more exaggerated. And you would think there's no way any of this is true. Right. But, uh, you know, a few years ago when Walter passed away, I mean, the guy was there at the funeral and like telling the story. <laughs> I mean, it's like, did you ever see the movie Big Fish? No. So it's been a while, but like the basic gist is like this guy has this dad who tells all these fantastical stories and there's no way they could be true. Right. But at the end, oh, like fishing tales or... show up and it, you know what I mean? It was exactly that scenario. I mean, <laughs> one thing after another, this guy, these stories, you know, were, were crazy. Um, so anyway, he just, uh, not only was an amazing teacher and got me started on some great stuff, uh, you know, reading, writing, rudiments, jazz, independence, things I could do all that separately. But he had a way of connecting the dots to make that all work, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and then it was also about um, connecting all of the students so that they would be, you know, so that they would be successful. Um, and making, you know, connections that way. Right. And he would take us out. I mean, he had some pretty amazing students who had gone on to be um, pretty, you know, successful. Allison Miller is a drummer out of mm -hmm. New York. Um, you have to do a, a, a podcast with her. Uh, she's amazing jazz drummer. She plays all styles. She's in the studio. She's been on the road with everybody like Natalie Merchant. She's traveled all over the world. She's um, composed her own music. Um, you know, she's, she's amazing. Then there's, um, do you know JP, uh, John Paul from, uh, clutch? No, uh, a monster drummer. Um, and clutch is like a hard rock band. Yeah. yeah. I know the band. I just don't Walter, know him personally. Walter was like in his late seventies. I mean, basically walking into the nine thirty club in DC for a clutch show with like an 80 year old man. <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, this guy would really just he cared about all of his students and i came in kind of a later age but like mm -hmm. i just saw this world that he created it was kind of like this safe house in a way for all of his students sure. you know what i mean mm -hmm. like the younger ones would have like set times where they would you know hang out um you know and then their parents would pick them up but the other older kids whether they were in high school or college man they'd just be over there i mean they weren't getting into much trouble, but like they could be getting in trouble much worse places. You know, right. Walter didn't care if you smoke or drank or did whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, he just just wanted to make sure everyone was was good and playing drums and, and connecting right. that way. At so that, really you know, at that point, it's like all about the hang. And you know, I've had numerous lessons with numerous people where like we never even pick up drumsticks. Isn't yeah. that the best? <clears throat> yeah, same thing. I would uh, so he would load me up on a bunch of stuff. I had a bunch of books. I'd go out on the road, work on it. I'd call him like weekly and we'd spend like two hours on the phone not talking about one thing having to do about the drums. Right. And that's uh, the best. It is. Yeah. It really is. Um, and, you know, unfortunately he passed away uh, a few years ago and uh, I started working with a bunch of other teachers, um, friends like that. I told you I was living in Chicago. Um mm -hmm. I worked with a guy, Dan Leally. He was playing in the Blue Man Group at the time. He's a great jazz player. This guy, Brad Schluter. Um, have you ever heard of the Drum Pad? It's a famous uh, store outside of Chicago, drum store. Um, no. And he, he teaches out of there. Um, he has a million exercises, writes for Drum Magazine, things like that. He just had cabinets full of exercises. So that was awesome. Nice. Um, 
I went and met with Joe Morello once before. Man, I, I, sh- it's funny. I, sh- I actually I shared an elevator with him one time, and I was like, I was like Joe Morello. I was like, I'm a big fan of yours, and he's like, What's your name? And I said Nick Ruffini. He goes, I'm a big fan of yours. Ah, I'm like, I mean, he didn't. He was just, you know, just saying okay. it, just saying it to be nice. And yeah. uh, but then a few years ago, I talked to his wife and was like setting up lessons with him, and then he passed away. Oh my god. Like, it was the same thing for me. I saw, like, in the back of a drum magazine, an ad that yeah, said, Joe Morello I, is currently accepting new students. And I, I was saw like, the is same this thing. a joke? Yep. Is this a joke? Uh, That's why I called him. Exactly. Yep. So I, and the wife answers. She's yeah. the sweetest lady ever. Yep. Um, and so when I was in the city one time and we set it up, I mean, I think I had to take, like, three buses to get there from the city. But it was worth it. I mean, mm-hmm. I only had one lesson with him. I was there for, like, one hour. Right. But it just made such an impact. Um you know, his theory was all about letting the sticks naturally do the work and all your body movements should be natural movements, natural motions. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things you hear about, you know, sure. from everybody, but it's just such an important lesson. You know, let the sticks rebound, staying loose, let the sticks vibrate. You know, mm-hmm. you get a great sound off the drum that way. Um, yeah, and then again, it wasn't a lot of playing. It was a lot of talking, you know I mean? He said like, you know, back in the day, there was this little bit of competition that he had had with between him and Buddy Rich. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of mutually beneficial because Buddy Rich was just without a doubt the best drummer. And right. so it was great for him to kind of have somebody that he would keep schooling. Yet Joe was such a good drummer that it wasn't like he was embarrassing him. You know, it was just kind of like, you know, Joe was, it was great for Joe because he was being compared to Buddy Rich, you know. So it worked kind of both ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the story he told me was basically like they were sitting around one day and they were good friends, but the the vibe was that they were kind of button heads, like competitive. Mm-hmm. But they're, so they're sitting around and Joe's kind of messing with him. He said, yeah, if you're so good, why don't you teach me something? And Buddy picked up, his, you know, one stick and let it bounce one time. And he said, that's it. That's the single most important thing there is, the way he did it, you know, letting it naturally rebound. So just cool stories like that, man. I, excuse me. I regret it every day that I didn't, I didn't get get a chance to study with him. It sucks. Yeah, I know. But you know what? We have the internet, and that's just crazy how much footage you can find. Yeah, I have like, I've studied you know with some people. Uh, I studied with Daniel Glass, who studied with Freddie Gruber, um, <clears throat> and I just interviewed. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm just getting Bruce over Becker. a cold. What's that? Bruce Becker. Yeah. So I just interviewed him, who you know, who was a longtime student of of Freddie's too, and uh, you know, and JoJo Mayer, and all and all these guys have the same, the same approach with you know playing naturally and and not using, you know, not not necessarily using force, but using nature in the way that your body works ergonomically, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and what I've recently really started incorporating a lot of it into my playing. And you're like, oh, it just, all this stuff just kind of plays itself now. Isn't you know? amazing? And they tell you this stuff. It's like the very first things you learn. They're so obvious, yeah. you know? I mean, again, there is technique to it that you have to really work through. But this basic idea of staying loose, natural body movements, practicing slowly. I mean, these are things that you kind of skip over because you think, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. Right. But if you don't practice them that way, you're not going to develop the way you need to. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. That's, that's the stuff that fascinates me. People always, people always say, what's the best way to inc- increase your hand speed? And I'm like, play slowly. 
Absolutely. You know, and it sounds counterintuitive and it sounds like it would never work, but that's just the way it is. And, it, you know, it's, it's, that's what everybody teaches and that's the way that it works. So it's, you know, and I tell my, my students, you know, there's, and there's a million different ways to say it, figure out which one it makes an impact for you. But some version of, if it doesn't sound good, slow, it's not going to sound good fast. Right. Or if you can't play it slow, you're not going to be able to play it fast. Yeah. I mean, my buddy, Matt Billingsley, who plays uh, for uh, Taylor yeah. Swift's yeah. Um, touring band, live band, he's got it written on his drum head. Something like, in order to play fast, you have to be able to play it good. In order to play it good, you have to play it slow. And he has that written on his snare drum head. And he sits there in the shed and just works on that stuff. Right. I mean, that's the whole thing. And I think it's, it's uh, you know, I've been playing drums my whole life. And just these simple things, when I've gone back, have fixed so many of these issues that I was frustrated with. Mm-hmm. And when I read things about it, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Like, uh you know, talk about science and brains and how it's the most amazing thing there ever has been, how smart your brain is and everything like that. Well, you know what? The brain's kind of lazy, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's totally what it wants to do is create shortcuts. Yeah, path, the least you know? is, path of least resistance. Totally. And yeah. so when you do that, you, you know, you basically, the, the, the mind wants to kind of turn these these deliberate newly learned skills into these unconscious automatically performed skills. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but since it's sloppy, it just settles for good enough. So by practicing them slowly and you breaking those skills down into little parts and repeating them over and over, that's what forces you to really internalize this better pattern of performance. That's what you really learn how to play these things. Right. Then once you got that, then when you play fast, you can you can have the control over it. You have the ideas. I mean, there's that idea of, you know, when you play really really fast, there's not a lot of space in between each note, mm-hmm. right? But if you play slowly and you internalize these things, as you get faster, that idea of the space in between notes, you can just you can know the little details in between there, Absolutely. so you can have the control over that kind of stuff. That's, you know, that's how I always feel about playing slow and playing quarter notes, you know, at like really slow tempos. It's hard, man. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of space between those notes to, to really be on top or not on top of it, but be in sync with what's going on without using a click track or something like that, you know, and the wider that gap is, the harder it is to to process in your brain and then you know putting everything together you know that's why they always say if you're playing really slow in quarter notes you be you should be thinking in 16th notes and if you're mm-hmm. playing in 16th notes thinking in quarter notes yeah because you know, it's so it's so hard as that as that gap gets bigger and bigger and understanding like you said the the space in between each one of those notes and the beauty of it is like what lies in between that is that you can like push it or pull it or you know, you can be ahead of the beat or behind the beat or, you know, right on the beat. And that, you know, that goes down a whole different road. But I know. And that's what I love talking about. That's why I love your podcast so much. I mean, well, this thanks, idea, man. I appreciate that. The idea of being able to hear drummers expand on things and, and learn some things that I didn't think I would have 
gotten out of a podcast based on the subject. Or, you know, when you grow up reading drum magazines and it's just a question with a paragraph answer format, you can't hear what the drummer's really saying and you can't really have the space to go into detail. So that's what I'm really appreciating about it. So this is the stuff that, like, you know, we're just talking about this kind of like slow motion stuff, practicing really slow, those quarter notes. I mean, there's um, there's this tennis academy in Russia that I read about that Uh they – they reenact rallies without a tennis ball. So like the aim is like the idea is to like focus meticulously on technique. Like if somebody's swinging this way, where's the ball going to go based off their body movement and the racket and the approach and the players will like play each other and be able to read each other and learn things that way, you know? And like the same thing. What's that? That's insane. It, it's insane. And then I, the same article was talking about a, um, uh, if you slow down your golf swing mm-hmm. so that it takes 90 seconds from start to finish and see how many errors you detect. I mean, think of, you know, bringing your golf club all the way back and then all the way forward over the course of like a minute or two minutes long or something and just really pinpointing every single, you know, movement along the way. Yeah. Maybe I'll start doing that with, with drumming, put it on like freeze frame and then I'm, you'll never see me again. I'll lock myself in a closet and, yeah. Well, the idea is just, you know, looking at every detail of every movement, you know, you get a better grasp on the whole movement. So you have right. that better control, you know. You know, and I think that there's, you know, you can go overboard with it and just be like a complete technique snob. And I think once you get to a certain point, it starts to take the music out of what you're playing, you know, and you got to be able to, to play musically and be technically sound. And it's crazy, man. Like in the JoJo Mayer interview, he was like, I'm not a really big technique snob. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how are you not? A t- he's like the greatest technique in the world, you know? And he just said that, I don't know if you listened to it or not, but he said, well, I just, I didn't have, uh, I didn't, I felt like I was working too hard when I was playing. Yeah. You know? So I learned some technique and he was like, but it wasn't, re- it was more of a means to an end rather than just saying, I want to have perfect technique to have it. Wow. You know, that's amazing. He was like, I just, I was working too hard and people were telling me I was working too hard. So I learned how to do less work. While yeah. I was playing, you know, which is yeah. the key. I agree. I mean, I think for me, uh, I, I'm not really that interested in technique so much as just kind of finding out some things just to realize like, you know, there's no shortcuts practice, do what you got to do to have fun and put in the work. You know, it's like, uh, it's not something you can do every once in a while right? to get better. Totally agree. You know, you can't go to the gym for a couple hours, one day a month. You got to go for a little bit every day. Oh, there's my problem. <laughs> you can't take your prescription <laughs> all at once on one day that month. You got to take one pill a day. That's the way it works. Right, right. It's like the, the Jim Rohn thing. He's like, you can eat, you can't eat healthy once in a while, you know, yeah. and expect your body to just be healthy, you know? Oh man, you're giving me a new analogy I get to use. Thank you. <laughs> I got a ton of them from like, I don't know if you, <laughs> you know who Jim Rohn is. No, he's I don't, a, oh, is he the sports uh, analyst or no? No, no, that's Jim, Jim Rome. Okay. Uh, this guy's Jim Rohn, R-O-H-N. He's a, uh, he's like a business and life philosopher. It's probably one of the most famous, but he does like a lot of uh, motivational and inspirational stuff, but he's just like, dude, totally changed my life. You know, he's like, I used to complain about, about things being too expensive. And then my mentor said, they're not too expensive. You just can't afford them. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I, maybe I need to change up my, my game a little bit. So That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
So, um, so we got into this long talk about technique, which I love. Um, but I want to touch base or touch on the the tour and everything. So, where can everybody find out all this information? And when are tickets going on sale? And you know, I want I want people to come out and see your show, man. Oh, thank you. Um, I appreciate the plug. We um, so you can always find things, you know, at ofarevolution.com. That's our main website, and of course, you know, we've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We just started a Tumblr page, um, and we have our extended stays, uh, which is the that concept where we're going out to the West Coast mm-hmm. and doing residencies for a week. So that's on sale, but I pretty sure it's all sold out there are a couple show, shows we filled in in between um anaheim portland seattle some shows like that if you're on the west coast we'd love to see you um but then the summer tour starts june 12th i believe uh the album comes out june 10th and june 12th we're hitting the road with philip phillips so that's going to be an awesome summer um you know he's just he, he that guy's just on another level and he's really bringing some stuff to this tour. That's going to be a really cool experience. Great. So how, does, how does that work with you guys picking it? Does, does management pick them or do you guys pick them personally or how does that work? Well, you know, we're tied in, you know, to a lot of the decisions, but you know, we have a great management team. A lot of this stuff happens because we've, you know, surrounded ourselves with some cool people and trust what they bring to the table. And sometimes it's a tour where maybe we're, you know, doing a favor for somebody, you know, and kind of all scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of a thing. Uh, other times it's straight up. I'll bring a band to the table and just say, Hey, I've noticed these guys are making some, some, a big impact somewhere right. and our, um, you know, booking agent will look into it, give some calls some managers will talk and they'll say, Hey, it's the right fit. So it happens different ways. In this case, it was about summer tour being kind of now the anchor where we base our entire year around. Mm-hmm. Um, because the way we tour, um, honestly, the Midwest and the East Coast is a lot bigger for us than the West Coast and the Southeast and Texas. So we can't go out and on a summer tour with two or three buses and two or three trucks and go into club dates on the West Coast. Right. You know, it just doesn't work. So an um, idea of, well, who can we team up with? And we had an amazing summer last year with uh, Andrew McMahon, mm-hmm. uh, who was in uh, Something Corporate and Jack's Mannequin and a, and a bunch of bands like that. And then we had Alan Stone, huge up-and-coming uh, singer who's just got this amazing voice. It's like Joe Cocker meets, you know, Bill Withers meets everything that's just soulful and awesome. Right. Um. And so this summer going into it, we, you know, just wanted to team up with an act that uh, made sense. The bill makes sense, but it's also great. It's going to put butts in the seats. It's going to um, bring different audiences. Mm-hmm. Our audience might not be familiar with Philip Phillips outside of, you know, his, his huge single or his American Idol success or whatever and see what we see in his live performance and what he does and what the rest of his, his catalog is. Mm-hmm. And then his audience doesn't necessarily know who we are. So that kind of, you know, cross promotion is going to be, I think going to be great for the summer tour. That's awesome. And you know, the reason why I ask is I know a lot of bands do it differently. Some bands are like, Hey man, you know, they don't touch it at all. Rush actually, Neil Pert picks all the opening bands. Cool. Um, so, you know, I, I was talking to, uh, to Scott Mercado from Candlebox when they opened for, 
Rush years ago, and and he found out that that you know Neil picks all of them. So I w- I'm always curious to see like how the bands, you know, how they pick them, and and who should I I should be pitching the uh, the the Nick Ruffini band to? Yeah, man. <laughs> I know a guy. Yeah, yeah, I know a guy. <laughs> yeah, man, an, an organ tree would that would sound that would go perfectly with your. <laughs> Make it real jazzy, man. <laughs> Well, Chris, man, this was this was great chatting with you, and uh, I would I'd love to do it again. Maybe we, you know, while you're on the road or something, we can we can catch up and and chat about you know how the tour is going or something. That'd be awesome. I would love to, man. Let's let's get together. Let's hang. I just want you know play some drums. Let's do it. Um, if anyone's interested in, in in reaching out, you can find me on uh, on Twitter. It's at uh, Chris underscore Coolis. I guess there's another Chris Coolis out there who took uh, took my name. Dude, I got the same thing. I got Nick underscore Rafine. I'm so mad that yeah, you know, I didn't I, and I've had Twitter for years and just never used it, and I didn't realize that like the underscore was like a no no in Twitter. <laughs> so, like, no, you're not supposed to do that. So yeah, and I'll, everything that is list or that we mentioned in this interview, and you know, all of your websites and how they can get tickets and how they can get to you on Twitter and everything will be at drummersresource.com forward slash you will be session 31. So that'll be all all your information will be on there. I'll link it to OAR, link it to link it to you. Like I said, the tickets, the venues, all that stuff, get the new record. And, uh, yeah, man, like I said, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. It was awesome. Awesome. Nick. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And I'll be talking to you soon, brother. Cool, man. Talk to you soon. All right. See you. He was here. Now he's gone. Chris Coolis from the great band OAR and you can find all the links to get to Chris and to get to OAR just by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 31 I'll have all the links on there if you want to pick up the new record if you want to buy some tickets to go or go see OAR which I strongly suggest they're a great band and not only that they'll be on tour in the summertime at these outdoor venues which is just an awesome time and if you want to visit us visit us at drummersresource.com or facebook.com forward slash drummersresource or get at us on twitter at drummers r source and if you want to leave us a review on itunes we would greatly appreciate it and if not it's all good all right until next time keep drumming thank you so much for listening i appreciate it i'll be talking to you soon peace